you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. We do want to kick off Fast Money because it starts right now from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, crypto looks like it is staging a comeback as some of the biggest altcoins lead the rally. And the man who runs one of the largest cryptocurrency hedge funds says Bitcoin is flashing a rare buy sign. Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital will be here to explain what that is. And later, Fast Money's Weed Week heats up with one of the largest publicly traded pot companies. The CEO of Aurora Cannabis will be here to tell us where he's seeing the biggest growth opportunities in the industry. But first, we start off with some major market leaders getting back in the saddle. Once again, check out the moves this week for the likes of Amazon, Boeing, Caterpillar, Google, NVIDIA, all surging back with a vengeance within shooting distance of their recent highs. So are these stocks heading right back to these highs? And if these leaders take charge again, is the rest of the market back in the saddle again? Guy. Well, I think Amazon is, Mel, and I think the rest of the market's fine. I mean, we had, if you look at the S&P, we've talked about it a number of times. 2580 held a bunch of different times, bounced off it. This sets up like February 2016. So I do think the market sort of grinds higher from here. Amazon, though, Really, the only reason Amazon went lower, in my opinion, is some of the stuff out of the Trump administration. Obviously, the stock was under significant pressure. Jeff Bezos has said word one nothing since then. They report April 26th. I would submit they're going to report a ridiculous quarter, and that ridiculous quarter is going to be manifest itself in operating margins, probably north of 3%. And I think the stock takes out that 16, 18 level, which was the recent all-time high. Yeah, so they might do that, and they might not. And so when you think about that week, I think it's going to be really important because I think the only way that this market can get back up to the prior highs is if you do have Google, Microsoft, Amazon, which all report next week, throw Intel in there, um, they're going to really need to blow it out, and they're going to have to have a very different reaction to the bank stocks that we've seen over the last week and a half. They're actually going to have to follow through. And I just want to make one really important point. We had that sell-off from January 26. The market went down, what, 10, 11, 12 percent. We had Amazon go back and make new highs. We had Facebook make new highs we after the, that. We had J.P. Morgan. We, we, we had, yes. Yeah. So, so some of the leaders, the prior leaders, went back and made new highs. You know what didn't make a new high? The S&P. 500. So to me, we could be in a massive trading range and all those stocks that you had up there that were prior market leaders all of 2007, they may go back to the highs, but the market may not. Doesn't the price action, though, that we've seen today in uh, CSX, UAL, uh, as well as Netflix, give you hope that stocks will actually react to the yes. reports they put up? Yes. I mean, outside of the banks outside themselves, of the banks. Uh, and, and obviously, and if you ask me, I think the banks reported absolutely incredible quarters, quite frankly, and obviously the reaction hasn't been there. It was in the pre-market, and then suddenly they get in the regular market day, and everybody wants to sell them off. But if you go across the board and look at a Netflix and you, you look at a Cisco, you look at an Oracle, you look at Microsoft, I think these are names going forward. When we start getting into the tech side of things, we will see some huge moves from the stocks. I think we will see some of those new highs because they still trade. When you look at their earnings and the strength of their earnings and the revenues that I think they're, they're going to put up, these are companies that still trade very inexpensively. And because of that, I think which, there's plenty oh, of upside. Sorry, hold, I, yeah. I'm not sure I agree with that one. Okay. So which of these names do you think are? Microsoft. Names? Microsoft's going to go to 110. 
Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I think Microsoft, a lot of Intel's growth is priced go to in there. I think the airlines are cheap. Here, here's what I want to yeah. say, Pete, because I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but ultimately, I look at those names that we posted up there. I, I think Boeing's expensive. I think Caterpillar's expensive. I think they're really expensive in a 3% tenure. By the way, we closed at 287. Not a big deal. The most important thing for the markets has been a growth scare is a lot more damaging than an inflation scare. And I think we had some growth scare, whether it was trade wars, whether it was, I'm not, I don't believe that. I'm saying the market was concerned about it. I well, actually you isolated think, the industrial names that I would totally agree with you. I'm not talking about those names. Okay. The names I threw out there were more the tech names as we get towards the tech portion. Some of those industrial names, yes, they're absolutely ridiculous when you look at the PEs. But I think when you come to a Boeing, people are looking at it saying, look at the cash. Look at yeah, this. Cash they're, flow they're, per share. they're having people look at different areas because of the fact that the PEs are at levels we've never seen before in a lot of these. Yeah, areas. and I think I think people rightly say 24 bucks a share in cash flow in 2019 for Boeing is great. Yeah. I think we may be saying the same thing. What's coming out here, I think, is that the, the, the globe is in a better place. We've seen a, at least some slightly better data. We've seen interest rates go better around the world. We've taken trade off the table. I think Dan thinks it's just a headline away. He may be right. Um, but what I'm saying is stocks that were expensive are now expensive. And I think that's been proven. It, and I think the S&P, while it got through 2,700, um, the jury's still Maybe out. we don't want the leadership of the old leadership. Maybe. I, you know, like a Boeing or a Caterpillar, the stocks that, that seem to just soar to new highs despite valuation. Yeah, Tim makes a fair point. Boeing was somewhat parabolic from, I want to say, late fall to earlier this year. It was a tech year. stock. It was, I mean, it was, it was, it was trading it was like a tech 80%. stock. But, you know, in terms of valuation, Boeing was more expensive a few months ago. It, Boeing at one point was trading close to 30 times forward earnings. Then the tax deal came in. Boeing got that bump. They raised guidance. Now it trades closer to 21 times, which, by the way, is still probably expensive in terms of where it should be. But if they got higher again, that 21 times might look more like 19 times. Then we're talking about Boeing being a decent value stock. Yeah, I think that you're going to talk about tech and we got to talk about valuation. we got to talk about what... what some things are telling us there's major bifurcation right now in technology. You mentioned Oracle. I don't think you meant to mention Oracle. Oracle has a massive gap from its last quarter earnings when they guided down. It's really that a way of, is that your way of saying you think Pete's wrong? Well, maybe. But on that one <laughs> day, trying to clarify. IBM was down 8% today. Yeah. Juniper was down 5%. This is the most important one. Lamb Research. They make equipment to make semiconductors, okay? They missed their first quarterly Deliveries since Q3 of 2013 today. They had some commentary on the NAND uh, flash market. Okay, semiconductors got hit today initially. They recovered a good bit. You know what didn't? Lamb Research and AMAT didn't. And usually these are very cyclical. AMAT's names. an interesting trade, though. AMAT oftentimes does move in a but different way than the rest of the two semis. stocks that traded 12 times. They traded very 12 inexpensive. Times. Right. Okay, they traded 12 times for a reason. They're very cyclical. And yes. so when you start to see the guidance that they just gave, you have to start paying attention if you're a technology investor. If you're not, you're being lazy. I have a question here. We had a good conversation about individual stocks within this rally um, and since the recent lows. Do we reach new highs or do we reach prior highs on the S&P 500, Pete, mm -hmm. with the same leadership or new leadership? I think that the same leadership with the addition of energy. I think what you're going to see is that the financials, as much as they've underperformed post-earnings, I think those are names that will chop a little bit higher as they go. I think also if you go to the technology space, I think there's plenty of room to the upside there. But it's energy, I think, that could be the rotational piece that actually pushes this thing. You don't see No, I don't. I mean, energy is just too small. And, and so to me, the only answer 
is TMT, which is almost more than 30% tech, media, telecom. Let me, I mean, that's the let only me take a different angle on that. I, 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 I agree with it. And then you small, take, but I, but I would argue, and I, I, again, I don't want to speak for Pete, but I think he might be talking about if energy is rallying, it's not just rallying Pete's because of here, supply. you know. He can speak for himself. <laughs> He's a big boy. He's much bigger than I am. No, no, no. Whatever. Bottom line, what I'm saying is commodities, um, CRB, two and a half year highs today. Okay? Energy. How about all those people that came on this show so they'd never see oil, oil above 40 bucks in their lifetime? Um, I'm checking in on their health. <laughs> because oil is doing really, really well. Commodities are doing really, really well. And I think actually the dynamic here is, if anything, the reflation trade is telling us that people feel more confident, but banks are the place and you, you know got to go. Really I think well interest rates well. are about to go higher. How about some of the numbers going back to the banks for just one second? How about Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs in the FIC trading? I mean, there is something going on, I think, within the banks that actually it does apply towards the commodity trade that makes this that much more interesting where I think if this stays the way it has, copper the way it's been moving around, See, obviously oil. You disagree. I, I just think <laughs> with, the, with the FIC trade, it almost seems so late cycle that we're seeing this activity. We're seeing this flurry of volatility that's helped the trading. We're seeing a capital markets activity, which may well, be late cycle. <laughs> you put the energy stuff in there. You talk about the CRB. We're seeing these input costs go up at a time where interest rates, like you just said, we saw the 10-year close at the highest level of time. All of this could be painting a really disgusting masterpiece for all the bulls out. There. Despite I mean, the fact that we we disgusting masterpiece, I heard. Like a Rothko. Complete disagreement on that. Go ahead, guy. I know like, you got something. Like, no, like, I am a disgusting yeah, masterpiece. You were an art major at Georgetown. What was an example of disgusting masterpiece? Minor wise guy. You say that like there's something wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Fine arts, my man. Renaissance man here. The steel sectors had tailwinds now for quite some time. I would submit steel should be higher, but for all that tariff nonsense that happened a month or so ago. The fundamentals never really change. You hear some of the commentary on some of these steel names, and U.S. Steel should be $44 stock. The only reason it's Agreed. not, in my opinion, is you got some of that nonsense that. rhetoric three or four weeks ago. All right. Well, speaking of new highs here on the markets, the energy sector trading just 5% from its 52-week high. Our next guest says the energy rally is just getting started. Let's go off the charts with Robert Slimer of Fundstrat Global Advisors. Hi, Rob. Hey, Melissa. Thanks very much. So a lot of interesting stuff happening from a technical standpoint. We've just heard everybody talk about the high momentum stocks. And here we have uh, oil putting in this what looks to be a much longer term bottoming process developing, making new sort of intraday highs just today. So there's some interesting stuff. Here's that big trading range that we went through last year and it's broken out. That's about a 35% range. If you double that trading range, it just conveniently gets you back into this low 80 range, which is where I think oil can go. And even this little trading range we've been in the last couple of weeks, that's another 15% that gets you into that level as well. So oil looks pretty interesting from a long-term standpoint. To Dan's point, I do think this is late cycle. We had a major cycle low in 2016. And as we move through the broader market cycle into 18 and into 19, I think we're in the later stages of the cycle. Now, let's look at the oil stocks because there's a big variance between what the commodity is doing and what the oil stocks are doing. Really quite weak. This looks to be a generational low. Tom Lee, Fundstrat's founder, has pointed that out. This is probably a much longer-term investment opportunity. But what we haven't had is that relative performance coming in yet. And that takes time. So if that was a generational low, think about what the financials did after 2008, 2009. And think about what tech did off the 2002 lows. It took a, an entire market cycle before they began to lead. Oil, start, oil stocks are starting to pick up here, obviously very heavy weighted to uh, names like Chevron and Exxon, but there are some stocks that are looking very interesting. I like the E&P names. Fair enough, they're not market leadership. It's very tough to compete with names like Amazon and Netflix and whatnot. But when you look at this much longer term pattern, 
I think EOG is on the verge of starting to break out. Relative strength to the market is finally showing some signs of improvement. So within the E&P space, it's interesting. And lastly, let's look at one of the big stocks, big boys. And here's Chevron. This takes you back to 1981. You don't often see that perspective. When we came into the 2016 lows here, we'd argued that Chevron had pulled all the way back to the long-term trend. Sure, it's not leadership, but I think for investors that have a three to five plus year investment horizon, this is a pretty interesting name about to come out of that big trading range. Relative strength, again, still in a downtrend for the last two years, but slowly starting to improve. I think for investors with a long-term investment horizon, the energy space is a very, very good place to be. Should we invite Rob to the desk? Of course. All uh, right, come on over, Rob. We need him. No. I mean, <laughs> hey, I <laughs> Brian will bring the chair in. Brian, a.k.a. Vanna White. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so you brought up the chart of crude, obviously, for the energy sector. But in terms of materials more broadly, I mean, we've seen what, six-year highs in aluminum. We've seen a rally in yep. steel prices. I mean, is this part of a, a broader trend higher for commodities? I think it is. I'm not convinced it's sustainable leadership to take over from technology yet. But when you look at, uh, say, the chemical stocks, many of those have had big pullbacks through January, February, March with the market. Most are bottoming. So I think you have an opportunity to rotate into some more cyclical names. The transports are acting better. Energy starting to perk up. It's a market of stocks. It's not only high momentum names. So I think for investors, there's actually a lot of opportunities here. You mentioned leadership, and we were debating that here on the desk in terms of what can bring the, the market to new highs. Energy can't, right? I mean, Energy's it's just, not it's big too enough. Small. It's not. And you sort of need the financials to participate. They're under a bit of pressure. But when you step back and look at the banks, and to your point earlier, a lot of these names have pulled back. They're weak from a relative uh, performance standpoint. But I think they're just pulling back to 200-day moving averages into consolidations. I don't think they're breaking down. But, there's lots of opportunities, I think. Mm -hmm. but, but there's a reason why energy is rallying, and it's not just supply disruption. And that's a tell on the broader economy. It's a tell on banks. What do you see when you look at the 10-year chart? Because I think everyone is obsessed by what's going to happen with long rates. So when I look at break-evens, I look at a 10-year bond yield, I think that that 3% level is a cap for months to come. Uh, you had a big surge up. The market got nervous about it as we went into that February time frame. OIS spreads blew out. Market had the volatility uh, uh, meltdown. But I think yields under that 3% are mm -hmm. fine. I don't think it's a major concern. Longer term, I think we have the secular lows in place. Rates are going higher. But I don't think it's going to disrupt the market right here, right I now. Agree. Does a two-year have a cap? I, I don't have an answer for you right here. Okay. I think, the Fed, well, I think the Fed is more in charge of the two-year, and that's what's yeah, been going yeah. on. So right. I think you know, everyone's talking about an inverted yield curve. Right. Depends how aggressive the Fed's going to be, but we're you know, 42 bits right now, which I think, by the way, is total garbage for banks. It makes a difference, but people that are vilifying banks as an investment here, right. banks are making a lot of money, record numbers, best balance sheets, giving capital back. Rob, thank you. Thank you. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. I was talking to um, Jason Goldberg over at Barclays uh, today in Power Lunch, and he was saying that about three-quarters of the bank's capital is more tied to the two-year, a quarter is tied to the 10-year. Yeah. So the rise in the two-year should actually be very good for banks, despite yes. the massive reversal that we saw in Morgan Stanley from pre-market to, you know, during the trading day. Green Rupee and I were talking. I mean, out of all the sectors after earnings, banks are the most confusing for me because, yeah. I, quite frankly, I thought the J.P. Morgan quarter was great. The Morgan Stanley quarter I thought was outstanding. And Pete mentioned Goldman Sachs. I can't speak to why the stocks didn't trade well, but if you just look at the quarters in a vacuum, I thought they all were pretty good. All right, guys, but I just have to remind everybody, in 2007, the CRB index was ripping, oil was ripping, rates were really stable above 5%, everything was rosy, banks, every bank stock was making new highs every day. I'm not telling you it's over and we're going to crash. I'm just telling you it's the same thing I heard in 07, and it, frankly, it's the same thing I heard back in Is that type purple? 
It's, it's a check. It's like a check. It's a tight check. Good it's a tight check. I'm just nice. asking. I mean, there's a lot of pattern going on over there. <laughs> Almost too I got much. a lot going on, but man. It's very Almost clean over here. All right. Coming up, Steve Wynn's ex-wife, Elaine Wynn, is now the largest shareholder of Wynn Resorts, and she's gearing up for what looks like an epic boardroom battle. We'll tell you what it means for the stock. Plus, one of Bitcoin's biggest bulls, Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital, says the cryptocurrency is flashing a rare five sign. He'll be here to explain what that is. And later, the CEO of Goldman Sachs speaking to her own Wilfred Frost following its big earnings beat. We'll tell you what he said that got investors so excited. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. We have a news alert on Amazon. Let's get to Deidre Bosa in San Francisco with the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Well, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has just released his latest annual shareholder letter. We are going through it right now, but one thing I do want to flag right away is that he does say that 13 years post-launch of Prime, we have exceeded 100 million paid Prime members globally. This would be the first time that Amazon has actually come out with an actual number for the number of Prime members. And this is on the high end. There's been estimates anywhere between about 65 and 100 million. So, we now have Jeff Bezos saying that there are 100 million paid Prime members globally. Back over to you. We'll go through this and flag anything else we see. All right. Thank you, Deidre. Deidre Bosa highlighting out this filing. It's a shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos. So, uh, what do you make of this so, number? It's pretty it's a stunning. Number. Yeah. Two, I mean, a year and a half ago, it was 80. Um, and here's the other thing. Those are paid users. So you can also share those accounts. The most important point about this is that a Prime user spends twice as much as a non-Prime user on Amazon. And that's why they... This is such a big focus, and I think it's great for transparency purposes that they continue to uh, kind of disclose those numbers. They didn't for a long time. It was kind of a black box, um, but, you know, this is a great thing. I, I think it's odd that it's disclosed a week before their earnings. Earnings. I know. I was going to say that. It almost makes you feel like the earnings First time, first be time good. He's, he's, <laughs> we talked at the start of the top of the show. He has not made a sound since the old yeah. time. That's the first thing that he said, and in my opinion, that sort of augurs well for earnings this, in a couple weeks, week and a half. Amazon Prime is, I think, the death knell for consumer staples. Maybe not the death knell, but that's exactly the, the consumables business is the business they're going right after, after Walmart, after Target, after all these guys, and Amazon Prime is how they do it. All right, see the stock up 1.8%. This is on top of today's 1.6% gain. So moving higher in the after hours on this. Moving on, three new board members appointed at Wynn Resorts as Steve Wynn's ex-wife, Elaine Wynn, looks to shake things up. Contessa Brewer is here on set with all the details. Contessa. We just got this news after the bell. The appointment of Betsy Atkins, Dee Dee Myers, and Wendy Webb as independent directors brings the total number of Wynn board members up to 11, effective immediately. Women now make up almost 40% of Wynn's board. Comes on the heels of a letter Elaine Wynn sent to the board of Wynn Resorts, pushing to allow shareholders to nominate a slate of new directors ahead of the company's annual meeting. A company co-founder and former director herself, Elaine became the largest shareholder after ex-husband Steve Wynn sold all of his shares amid allegations of sexual harassment. She's pushing the company to hold off on making any big decisions, including whether to sell Win Boston Harbor, until new directors are elected. And she says she won't be one of them, says she won't nominate herself. She suggests the board actually dissolve itself or vote to add more directors, which you can see that they're appointing them now to maximize value and to restore its brand. But look, at the drip, drip, drip of news here, Win Resorts has settled its claims, its counterclaims against Elaine. Elaine and Steve have settled their long-standing legal disputes. Win Resorts has settled with Universal and co-founder Kazuha Akata. Jeffrey's gaming analyst David Katz says this all positions it perfectly for a sale. He says although the prospects for, for a new board and prospective changes, additions to the management team could take time, the trophy quality of the company's assets 
suggests market value exceeds operating value. He maintains a $200 price target. We saw today the stock was up about 1% to 192 and change. And the other thing is uh, you've got the guys at Wynn Boston Harbor pointing out that both Betsy Atkins and Wendy Webb have Massachusetts ties as well. Oh. How that factors into things, of course, we don't know yet. Who could be a buyer? Well, there have been talks already about MGM doing it. Neither MGM nor Wynn will confirm that that's the case. Um, we know that Las Vegas Sands has the money to do it. Galaxy has already bought 5% of this company. Could it invest more? That might make a lot of sense, especially given the revenue importance in Macau. Oh, and one more thing. In Macau, revenue, casino revenue is up in a big way. Hold on a second. I got I, I to gotta get the numbers right here. You ready for this? I was shocked by it. 64% growth. That 64% growth in just casino revenues and the earnings per share up 153%. That's stunning. They get the majority of their revenue from Macau. Yep. Guy, you pitched, and, you and pitched this. We were out there. We were out you guys we, are tight. So who? You and the man. We were. Steve we went Wynn. out. We sat. We talked with him. We, we interviewed him. Same with Wayne yeah. Newton. We, we talked Newton. about and, and don't look now, by the way, but win is 5% or so off its all-time high. Very stealth rally to the upside off that 162 level. Mm -hmm. Valuation, it trades about what Las Vegas Sands trades. McCarran traffic for March was up 4%, was up 2.5% the prior quarter. Macau revenues off the charts. There's no reason why the stock shouldn't if, be north of $200, in my opinion. You were delivered a gift when that stock got hit as hard as it did. The overreaction You've to been Steve Wynn issue because of the fact that it got sold up. Everybody said, well, you know, Steve Wynn, we're going to lose Steve yeah, Wynn. The, the reason I, I don't say think that, you can call it an overreaction. I, do. I think it's a pretty I think it response. A, no, I don't feel bad no, that no, I missed no, it. No, 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 no. It's a great, you know what? But here's a guy who's in, how old is Steve Wynn? I don't know. He's, I mean, he's Old he's enough ageless. that he was likely going to be stepping down not too many <laughs> no. years from now, and he's got all the pieces in place all the way through 2022. So I think because of all those reasons, that was an overreaction because this is a company that is kicking, they are literally. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. If you took out a takeout premium, where would the stock be? Yeah. If, if MGM and LVS said tomorrow, we are not interested whatsoever in buying Wynn, where would the stock trade? Would, be, would it be 5% off of its no, highs? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that the, the takeout premium's in it at all right now. Oh, it's not I in really, it. So I honestly move. don't believe that. No, but I mean, it, it's it's traded cheap to LVS before. I don't know why right. it has to trade at a premium. I, I think, you know, I look, I'm not saying the stock should be weaker. I agree Macau is kicking it. Killing yeah. it. Um, and I, I just think that the reason why the stock went to 165, it's easy to say today, but the fact of the matter is in this, heightened, in this environment, in this environment, there's a lot of things that could have happened to this company and still could. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to – I think we've seen a lot of clarity, but at, at 165, jumping in was – I'm not even sure how smart that was. Hmm. Contessa, thank you. 76, Contessa, by the way. Contessa's 76. been out there a few times A few times. And she's interviewed the new guy. Crushing it. The new CEO. Matt Maddox. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Maddox. <laughs> new guy, you know. Okay. Thanks for coming Contessa, by. Thank you. Coming up, Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein going on the record with our own Wilfred Frost. We'll bring you the comments ahead all of Wall Street talking today. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. I pass on grass all the time. Well, maybe you shouldn't, because pot stocks are showing signs of heating up. We'll hear from the CEO of the biggest pot companies, Aurora Cannabis. Plus, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Man ain't the only thing going to the moon. A billion-dollar hedge fund manager says Bitcoin is flashing a rare buy sign. That could mean a moon boom is coming. He'll tell us what that is when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. The crypto craze is back in full swing, and it's not just the biggest coins that are surging. Bob Bassani is breaking down the rally in altcoins from the NYSE. Hi, Bob. Hello, Melissa. You know, it's not just Ripple and Ethereum and Litecoin. We did that yesterday. Even the smaller altcoins have been moving recently. So Bitcoin Cash, Stellar, NEO, Cardano, you don't know them? You should. They all had significant intraday moves up today. Bitcoin Cash was up 15%. Stellar's up 12%. NEO up 6%. Cardano up 1%. This is just today. But since bottoming, these smaller coins have outperformed the bigger guys. So Bitcoin Cash is up 45% since it bottomed April 6th. Just a few weeks ago, along with a slew of other cryptocurrencies that did the same thing. NEO, another altcoin with a market cap of almost $5 billion. That's up 59% since bottoming on the same day. Stellar was another altcoin hit by the crypto crush, and it's up 82% from its bottom as well. And finally, Cardano, which had actually bottomed sooner than the rest on March 18th, it's doubled in price since that date. Now, that's the good news. But as we discussed yesterday, these are a long, long way from the highs they hit in December and January. And I know this makes your head spin, but Stellar's down 63% from its high. Cardano, 80%. Bitcoin Cash, 78%. NEO's down 56%. This is just as bad as the drop in the bigger names. So there's no real distinguish between the big and the small guys when it comes to who got hit. And when you're dealing with these micro altcoins, as you might call them, it's good to remember that you're not dealing with a lot of liquidity. Bitcoin's cash is market cap in December when it hit record highs was $69 billion. It's $15 billion today, $15 billion. That's only 5% of the roughly $300 billion in market cap of the entire cryptocurrency market. Melissa, it's very important to point that out for liquidity purposes. Back to you. Absolutely, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani at the NYSE. Well, the rally and altcoins aside, our next guest says that Bitcoin is flashing a rare buy sign that is hinting at a huge rally ahead. Dan Moorhead is the CEO of Pantera Capital. He's here on set with us. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What are you seeing in the charts? What are you seeing out there that makes you think the worst is over? So Bitcoin's been growing at 165% per year for six years that we've uh, been in business. And something that's growing that fast hardly ever gets down below its 200-day moving average. When it does, it's a very good time to buy. It did five years ago when we launched our first fund, and it just crossed that earlier in April. What makes this different from another asset where you might say, you know, crossing below the 200-day moving average is actually a bad thing? Yeah, so they use... Uh, <laughs> Technical traders use these different averages to decide when to get in. But it's amazing that Bitcoin goes up so quickly that when it just gets back to its average, that means it's time to buy again because it's been a vertical uh, line for eight years. Dan, congratulations on being an institutional investor who was doing you know, alternative assets and emerging markets and other things long before you stumbled onto this. But you stumbled very, very early. So you didn't just jump on this train. What's holding back other institutions? You're as well suited to opine on this. You've been running an institutional hedge fund business for a long time. Yeah, so there's been a lot of credentialization milestones. Uh, the biggest one recently is the CME and CBOE doing futures. That helps uh, bring in other investors. I think the last big one is a SEC regulated custodian. So when we launched our first fund, we had all the standard things you'd have in a normal hedge fund, but you, you don't yet have a regulated custodian. And I think that's the last piece. And some firms have announced that they will do crypto custody within the next, say, 12 months. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll be a very big yeah. moment. I'm sure, uh, you know, when Bitcoin was going up to its heights 
Uh, there are a lot of funds that actually started up. Not a very good time to start, in yeah. a way, because they had to ride the crash lower. You are fortunate. You've been in business for a long time. Your return, I think, over time is, what, 25,000% over your That's lifetime? All. Yeah, That's all, Dan. <laughs> At the same time, the value of your fund, your cryptocurrency fund, was yep. cut in half or so? Yes. Since the beginning yeah, so of it's, the year? Yeah, so it's correlated with the markets. So what are you seeing in terms of the industry overall? Has there been a shakeout in your space in terms of the funds that had opened up more recently? It's so new. There's only a handful of funds that have been around for more than a year. And so you read that there's 200 hedge funds now, but I haven't met 200 different managers. I don't know if that, that really exists. I would imagine there'll be a big shakeout um, with the funds that uh, most are long-only funds. That's very mm -hmm. common. Um, we have a long short fund so that we can, you know, weather downdrafts and, in fact, be up over the last four months when Bitcoin's gotten killed. Right. So how did you? How are you positioning yourself right now? I mean, you obviously were talking about the chart in Bitcoin specifically, but in some of the other coins, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Ripple. I mean, where do you see that going? How sure. are you? Uh, you know, where are you putting your money? So in December, when the markets were going uh, vertical, we did raise some cash so that. If they uh, crashed, we could be fully invested. We're now fully invested. I think this is a, a rare opportunity um, to get into something 65% below its highs. You don't get that opportunity very often. Uh, and we dynamically trade all the different currencies. There's about 60 that are liquid enough for us to trade. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Bitcoin, Ripple, Zcash, things like that. Hey, Dan, back in December, right before the top in Bitcoin, I heard you on CNBC. Yep. You said one of the things that's really attractive about digital assets is the, how they're not correlated to traditional yep. investment assets. Since then, they've actually been pretty correlated. If you think about the run-up, um, I know Jeffrey Gunlock from DoubleLine has said, watch Bitcoin because that's going to tell you where stocks are going to go. That's really been the case since December. How do you feel about that right now? Yes, uh, there was a very coincident drop in the equity markets and Bitcoin. But statistically, it never got above 0.2 correlation between wow. stocks and Bitcoin. And it's, it's really true that Bitcoin's a half a trillion dollar market that nobody owns. I mean, it really isn't owned by institutional investors. So when they have to sell equities to hedge whatever risks they have, they don't have any Bitcoin or crypto to sell. And that's one of its advantages. All right, Dan, we're going to leave it there. Great to see you. Hope Great. you come back. Dan Moorhead of Pantera. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear about the 200-day. And for a lot of people to, to believe that an asset class like this, like Bitcoin, could actually respect you know, major technicals, it, it absolutely has. I, I, you bring up a great point, though. You know, it traded through there, and it didn't look like it was holding it. And there's a lot of days where a lot of people thought, and I think, Dan, you, am I wrong? I mean, we could maybe test 5,000 again? Yeah, I, I, listen, I think that was a really nice bounce. It was really a one-day bounce. It's held there now. If you look at the log chart since the high in January, if you're just looking at the technicals of it, it's at a pretty crucial spot here. And if it fails and we have more concern about regulation and that sort of thing, it's going back to the November level where it broke out from, and it went from 5,000 to 10,000 to 20,000. So to me, I think just like an overshot to the upside, there's a good chance it does so. To so are the you outside. uncomfortable with it at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it listen, sounds like it. That's can why I, I'm Can I tell you something, though? If you're buying an asset like this, you know, we've talked about it. Everybody, the best crypto investors who come on here saying to people, our viewers, you shouldn't have more than 5% of your investable assets. And if that's the case, then if you buy here at 8,000, you better be prepared to buy again at 6,500 and then at 5,000. So it's that sort of thing because look at the way it's been moving over the last year and a half.
if we put up that chart again, we hid what it was. I we play we this, do this game a lot. We play this well, game a lot. You put up the chart and you, you, you block it out. Right, And God right. gets especially confused every what time. Would you I like say, what would you say the direction of higher, the line would Mel. be? Higher, and we okay. talked about this. We played this game a week and a half ago. Recall when Bitcoin was trading 6,500 bounce, mm -hmm. and we said, you said, if you took the thing off the top yeah. and looked at this chart, I said, you know what? It looks like it made a bottoming formation, and we should be headed higher. I think Dan makes a good point. We are at critical levels, not unlike what we are in the S&P. So... S&P held where it should have. Bitcoin held where it should have. They both seem to want to go higher from here, in my opinion. All right, still ahead. Goldman CEO Lloyd Blankfein sitting down in an exclusive interview with CNBC's Wilfred Frost earlier today, making some candid remarks about the market. We will bring you those comments. Plus, it's Weed Week here on CNBC, Fast Money specifically. That might explain all the giggling and fast food. <laughs> Tonight, we are talking to the CEO of Aurora Cannabis, one of the biggest players in the space. Much more fast right after this. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein speaking out in a CNBC exclusive interview on Squawk Box earlier today. For more, let's get to our very own Wilfred Frost, who sat down with the CEO out in Chicago. Hi, Wilf. Hi, Melissa. Yes, indeed. We know that yesterday, of course, Goldman Sachs uh, reported an earnings beat. That was in part because trading bounced back, uh, which was largely because of higher volatility. And I asked Blankfein whether he felt that volatility could continue for the rest of the year. Conditions where interest rates are zero, yield curves are flat, there's no risk premium, where central banks all around the world are buying all the risky assets, which then therefore put a damper on volatility mm -hmm. and the opportunities to perform, that's not a natural state. We have not reversed all of that, but we're walking that back and walking too. So at the first indications of a withdrawal from what, again, is an unnatural state, guess what? The market becomes a bit more volatility. People get paid compensated for the risk that they're taking. Uh, our clients are doing better, and consequently, we're doing better with them. Now, despite the earnings beat yesterday, the share price did fall. That was largely because they announced they were suspending their buyback for the quarter. Here was Blankfein addressing that part of the earnings. And we're suspending buybacks for reasons that are quite good. One of the criticisms and unavoidable facts of the last few years is that the opportunity set was fairly low in our industry. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, the, the right thing to do, but we were still earning a pretty good return and earning money. Yeah. So we were giving money back to our shareholders so they could invest in places. We see opportunities to invest in our own businesses now. Now, despite the talk yesterday that the share price fell, despite the earnings beat, if you look at the share price there over the last week, it's in fact higher by 0.4%, which is worth, of course, taking note of. Guys? All right. Thank you, Wilf. Wilfred Frost uh, out in Chicago with that exclusive. Um, UBS pointed out that they were disappointed, uh, in particular, with Goldman Sachs' FIC number. Um, and Morgan Stanley's CFO made some interesting comments about volatility, because you would think with the increased volatility, it'd be good. Well, he said, well, some volatility like we've seen in February and March is gappy, and that's not necessarily good for business. Maybe we're not seeing the full translation yet. Think about the difference between Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs businesses now. It didn't used yeah. to be so big. Morgan Stanley is an asset manager. That's really their core business. Goldman Sachs is not. And I think what Lloyd said is really critical. We were in an unnatural state, and they're slowly walking it back. How are we supposed to make money in an unnatural state? And in fact, not only an unnatural state, but a state where they had targets on their backs. I think Goldman Sachs' profitability will absolutely increase, commensurate with volatility. And I think, why would you bet against Lloyd? Um, unless you don't like what Lloyd is investing in. 
with the money that he's no longer using for buybacks. I mean, if Lloyd is investing in a consumer business, which is the road that it looks like Goldman Sachs. They're absolutely going down that do you road. Want, do you want Goldman Sachs to look more like a Morgan Stanley? I think in terms of valuation, you want them to look more like Morgan okay. Stanley. I think you want Goldman Sachs to be good. I think for all the numbers we talk about, in my opinion, the only number that matters is this. Book value in Goldman Sachs in this quarter, the first quarter, was close to $187. Last quarter, it was $181. We're seeing rises in, in book value. What is the right multiple against that 186? I think in this environment, it's somewhere between 17 and 18. Do that math. I can do it in my head. Watch this. $335 so a why share. Why isn't Lloyd doing it in his head and buying back their stock? I, I mean, that's maybe what I don't sees, <laughs> Maybe I Lloyd wanna... sees better investments no, for that capital. No, because any investment he's going to be using the capital, the return is going to be years out, you know? I mean, so the game is right now, you buy the shares back, lower share count, higher EPS. We know the drill, right? It's bullish. It's not bullshit. Of course, it is. Citibank dividends and buybacks is buying back 12 percent of capital. Uh, th that is very bullish. Not to too me. long ago, we were crucifying companies for just sitting on cash and then buying back. But their they're growing their top There's nothing better to do. Now they're doing that, and they get they're doing that again. I think the most important important part is the fact that they did see this huge turn in the equity trading, the FIC trading, and that was big. I mean, you look at the numbers they put up; those were outstanding. And they also got into the investment and the lending. All of that is growth, and that's what you need, and Goldman Sachs has it. I agree with you. I think the multiple should put it towards 300. But, See that? But no giddy-up. Oh, full giddy-up. Okay, I didn't full hear Full giddy-up. Oh, yeah, okay. full giddy-up there. Full giddy-up. Still ahead, <laughs> the pot stock's <laughs> back. Um, they've been in fuego over the past year, up more than 200%. We'll talk to the CEO of Aurora, one of the biggest hitters in the space, on why the group is about to get even hotter. Plus, retail frenemies, Amazon and Best Buy team, you have to, to sell smart TVs, sending those stocks soaring today. So will this dynamic duo blow out the competition? We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money and welcome back to Weed Week. The cannabis craze continues to heat up as analysts estimate the marijuana market to hit more than $75 billion in sales by 2030. That's some serious green. Take a look at the market caps and some industry leaders. Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, Med Relief, and Kronos Group are all billion-dollar companies. And check out this chart. Aurora Cannabis shares up more than 200% over the past year. Let's welcome Terry Booth, the CEO of Aurora Cannabis, which just secured a deal to build the world's most high-tech cannabis greenhouse production facility of its kind. Terry, welcome to Fast Money. It's great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. This new facility is going to be called or is called Aurora Sun. What is that going to do in terms of helping you with the cost of production, bringing that down? And where will a lot of that production go? Yeah, the Aurora Sun project is, is quite something. It's 1.2 million square feet, uh, mainly production space with some post-processing. Um, it's going to grow about 150,000 kilograms per year. Uh, we expect to have it. Um, growing by this time next year, maybe even having a crop off next year. But it was really uh, uh, a upgraded version of our Aurora Sky project at the Edmonton International Airport. The Aurora Sun project in Madison Hat, we, we chose that city because of its tremendous amount of sunshine. And it is a, a hybrid facility that um, is, is unparalleled in the world. Yeah, it's in uh, Medicine Hat, Alberta. Um, in terms of uh, production, uh, one analyst note, Cowan, um, today, which actually upgraded your stock to a speculative buy from a hold rating, said that it's going to be a total cash cost of less than a dollar a gram. Where is it now so, so we can understand how this brings down those costs? I think the industry averages 
uh, from close to three to the lowest I've seen is about a buck fifty. So it positions us well on the go forward in this industry that you're seeing critical mass in. You're seeing um, you know, the larger companies, uh, uh, you know, buy the smaller ones, and and I, I see to go forward as you have to be a low cost producer, uh, and you better make sure you grow high quality cannabis. Hey, hey, Terry, it's Tim Seymour, and I think that's the next phase of that question is because it means that pr you know, production costs may go down, so may costs for the underlying product. You guys are a global player, and I just kind of want to get a sense of there's four or five guys that are leading the way. How difficult will it be for other people to follow you? Is critical mass critical right now? It, it truly is. The, the barriers to entry in Germany, Italy, Poland, Denmark are the EU GMP. Um, that's a, a the European Union GMP compliant is good manufacturing processes. Those barriers to entry were higher than Canada's. We had to upgrade our facility near Calgary just to um, export to Germany. But the beauty of what's going on in Europe, you've got you know close to 500 million people. You've got a medical cannabis system that's going one country at a time, so we're able to keep up with it. It's a good thing it doesn't go like that, or it would be a, a lot of work to do. It, is that they also cover the cost of cannabis? and the amount of cash we get per gram is much higher in Europe um, as we continue to export. Uh, production in Europe, there's very, very little. Um, they're going to have production, but it's five years out from being able to supply a decent medical market, for sure. All right, uh, Terry, we hope you come back to FAST. It's been fascinating talking with you. Terry Booth, the CEO of Aurora, joining us from Canada. Um, are you invested in this one? I, I'm invested in this one. Mm -hmm. I, you know, first of all, congratulations to our friends in Canada who've made this a global industry that the rest of the world is trying to emulate. And the Canadians are helping to do that in Germany and Europe and Uruguay. So I mean, it's a very real business. Um, it, it, make no mistake that the politics around cannabis in this country are changing. And I think it's going to be a very hot issue going into the midterm elections. And I think it's something that the White House is actually going to get behind. Um, but the valuations back to these stocks are not cheap. And there's a reason why they're not cheap, because I think a lot of these guys have to invest in their future production, which is what these guys are Particularly doing. Particularly in international markets. I was surprised at how much of a growth market Europe was going to be. I mean, they just made Aurora, just made an acquisition in Germany to help it there. And they are also applying for um, a production license in Germany as well to grow there. So things could be changing. We're, we think of cannabis and we think of the industry in North America primarily, because we're here. But there's one globally as well. 100%. I'm glad we're not playing the bong music, because it's a, it's a real story. And this is a... There it is. Thanks, Guy. See, we actually were having a serious conversation, and GW Farm has an FDA meeting yeah. tomorrow. When we go to the board over there with the with the mid, what do we call that? Power pitch, Fast right? Pitch. And we talk right. Power pitch, and we talked about Fast GW pitch. Farm. Thank you. A while ago. <laughs> yep. And that stock's had a decent run. So listen, there are real stories in this space, and when you get by the bong water and everything, yeah. this is a very disruptive industry. By the way, the CEO of GW Pharma will be on Power Lunch tomorrow. Unbelievable. Our special Weed Week continues here on Fast uh, with top Wall Street analyst Vivian Azer tomorrow, and Friday with former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, who is now on the board of a pot company. Coming up, Roku tanking today after Amazon and Best Buy announced a deal to sell smart TVs, but one trader just bet more than a million dollars the stock could soar from here. We'll tell you what has them so bullish. We are live at the Nasdaq market site in New York City's Times Square. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Best Buy and Amazon getting a boost after the retail frenemies announced that they will be teaming up to sell exclusive smart TVs. The deal dragging shares of streaming player Roku down nearly 12%, but one trader just made a million-dollar bet on a rally ahead. Dan's over at the plaza to break it all down. Dan. Yeah, like you said, Mel, the news wasn't great for Roku, especially a day after it was up 10% on some pretty good news. I would think it was up in sympathy with Netflix's good results, and Point72 took a big stake in the name. But today, down 12% on the Best Buy Amazon news. Uh, but it's interesting. Call volume was two times that of puts on the day the stock was getting smeared. Um, the largest trade of the day was a buy of 3,000 of the June 34 <laughs> calls paying 385 to open that was when the stock was 3376 those break even up at 3785 on June expiration interestingly that's not too far away from where the stock was just trading uh, yesterday the company uh, said they're going to report their third quarterly report as a, a publicly traded company on May 9th maybe this trader is targeting that move I just want to go to the chart real quickly when you look at this thing it went public uh, at 14 bucks back in September it's traded in a massive range this was after the first quarterly report had a 50 percent gain and then we have this nearly 18 percent gap on their second report so when you look at a trade like this you look at a stock that has actually really high short interest 50 percent um, you know one way to do it is to define your risk pick a direction um, you have a lot of leverage to the upside because this thing's going to move one way or another if the uh, results are outside the bounds of expectations all right thanks for that dan for more options action check out the full show friday 5 30 p.m eastern time up next final trades Final trade time, Pete. You know, we were talking about energy earlier in the show. Love the energy. Devon Energy is the one to go after. Giddy up. Tim. Again, Cannabis Week. This is all about the medical side. GW Pharma, they've got a lot going on. Check out that name. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so I think there's going to be some follow through in the semiconductor sector. Sell the SMH from that LRCX report. Dan was particularly salty tonight. What's Dan? going on? No, really? I can tell. I think I he's the same as salty. Same salt as every other night. The irony is he's got a purple tie on, which so is very inviting nice and friendly. You know, salt. Goldman Sachs initiated Freeport McMoran <laughs> back in March oh, with a $23 good. price target. Huge buyer. Say it, Pete. Where's Get it? it? Where's it? Freeport's 19 and change. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 more fast. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.